Let me encourage you to turn now to the book of Mark, chapter 9. During these holiday times, we've looked at a number of just sort of individual passages, um, taking a break from Luke, and the final one this morning, maybe the one I'm looking most forward to, is from Mark chapter 9. We're going today, as we did a couple of weeks ago, mainly to focus our attention on a single verse, namely verse 29. And we're going to spend most of the rest of our time together trying to unpack that verse and uh, thinking about coming back, some of you from trips, from the holidays. What we're going to try to do is just what you do when you come back from your trip. We're going to take this verse and try to rifle through every side pocket and open up every zipper and check every compartment and make sure we get everything out of this verse and store away in our hearts everything that we can from this verse. But now, so that we understand this verse and what Jesus is saying in Mark 29 and so that it will make the most sense to us, we need to back up and read the entire passage that leads up to it. We need to review in other words, the, the events that caused Jesus to say what he said here in Mark nine twenty nine. So begin reading with me back in verse 14. Mark nine fourteen. When they came back to the disciples, that is Jesus and a few of the other disciples who had been away, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Father, as we consider these verses, there's so many things for us to garner. God, I pray that in the new year we would be like the Father praying, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I pray that we would carry into the new year these words of Jesus, all things are possible to him who believes. And God, today, especially as we focus on the last verse of this passage, that you would teach us what it means for us to apply Jesus' words 
this kind comes out only by prayer. Help us today. Build into us a hunger for prayer, a faith in you so that we might pray, a desire to see you do great things in our midst. All for Jesus' sake, we ask in his name. Amen. What I suggest to you this morning from verse 29 is simply this, that these words, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer, really form a sort of paradigm or a pattern for the Christian life in general. Now, certainly the events of this chapter don't provide a paradigm for everyday life. Most of us aren't dealing on any regular basis with demonic convulsions, probably. But I'm certain that each one of us does deal with many other kinds of situations in which Jesus' words in verse 29 are apropos. That is to say, I'm convinced that nearly all of us find ourselves, if we're walking with God, more often maybe than we even realize we find ourselves in Mark 9, 18 kinds of situations. That is to say, I'm convinced that most of us find ourselves in situations where we're trying to accomplish something. Maybe it's an obviously spiritual task. Maybe it's just getting the lid off the pickle jar. But we're trying to do something and it just won't budge. Things aren't happening like we thought they would. Things aren't happening like we wish they would. And in those situations, I think many times if we could only hear Jesus' voice audibly like the disciples heard it that day, we would find him saying something like this to us. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. In other words, I think Mark 9.29 is the solution to a lot of our problems. And I think Mark 29 will be the strength behind many of our successes in the coming year and in the years beyond that. You're trying to win a family member to Christ, perhaps. And you've talked to them and said the right things and shared the gospel, but it just doesn't seem to be sinking in. And perhaps what God is going to say to you this morning is, this kind of heart will not be opened by anything but prayer. Or maybe you're trying to overcome some sin problem. And you've done all the things that you're supposed to do. You've sought accountability. You've confessed the sin to God. You've memorized scripture that will help you when you're tempted. But you're still struggling and you don't feel like you've changed that much. And maybe it is this morning that God is going to say to you, this kind of sin will not go out by anything but prayer. Maybe it's even a medical issue that you or a loved one are dealing with or that one of you physicians is trying to treat and you've done all the right things, you've done all the right tests, you've given or taken all the right medicines and so on, but maybe this kind of disease will not come out by anything but prayer. And we could say the same kind of thing over and over and over again about big things and small, whether it's lost keys or family disputes, or cars that won't start, or financial ends that won't meet, or dozens of other things. Sometimes what God is doing in allowing our efforts to come to very little fruition is waiting for us simply to pray, to pray. And I want to give a caution before I go on, because we're going to talk about prayer the whole rest of the time this morning. But I need to give a caution, and it's namely this. Mark 9.29 does not teach that if your relative is without Christ, that you should pray instead of sharing the gospel. Nor does it teach that if you're wrestling with sin, you should pray instead of seeking accountability, instead of memorizing scripture, and so on. 
This is not advocating that you pray instead of going to the doctor. And it doesn't mean that if you'll just pray about the pickle jar lid, that the lid will just pop off on its own like a Mexican jumping bean, right? No. The point of this passage is not to promote prayer instead of other things, but that prayer is often the missing ingredient in what are otherwise good and faithful attempts on our part to do what's right and serve the Lord. We're trying to do what's right. We should try to do what's right. But oftentimes we can't do what's right because we've got to stop and pray. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples for trying to cast the demon out, right? No. They were right to pronounce Jesus' name over it. They were right to rebuke it or to do whatever it is that they did before verse 18. They were right to make the attempt. So the problem, in other words, wasn't that they were trying to do a good thing with their own two hands or with their own vocal cords. The problem was that they tried to do the good thing with their own two hands and their own vocal cords only. They tried to do God's work, right? But they tried to do God's work without stopping and pleading for God's help. And to teach them a lesson, God took the strength out of their words and out of their hands. He let their efforts in this situation flop so that they would remember their desperate need for him to work through them. And sometimes that's the case with us, isn't it? And that's really the whole point of the sermon this morning. It's not always that we're not trying to serve the Lord or trying to do good to others. It's that we so often dive right into the work of God without the help of God. Because we haven't prayed, or at least we haven't prayed seriously or fervently about the things that God would have us do. So don't walk away this morning thinking that Jesus is calling you to stop doing and just to start praying. No, the idea is that we would be doing both. Most of us are prone, like the disciples, to skip over the praying part, aren't we? Most of us are prone to just dive in and try to fix it or do it. But there may be a few of us who are bent in the other direction. And that's what I'm warning against. There may be a few of us who aren't really going to share the gospel. We're just going to pray about it. We're not really going to discipline our children. We're just going to pray that they'll turn out right. We're not going to go out and work. We're just going to pray that God will provide. And that line of thinking is just as much of a mistake as the other. We must work for the Lord. We must do what he's called us to do. And we must pray that he will come and do through us what we cannot do on our own. And that's the point in Mark 9. Let me go back and say again that most of us are prone to fall off the horse on the side of prayerlessness. And so that's the side of the horse that I'm going to be trying to prop you up on this morning. Most of us find ourselves living in Mark chapter 9 more often than we like, perhaps more often than we realize. And therefore, the reason we don't succeed, some of us, at sharing Jesus or overcoming sin or meeting the budget or whatever it may be, is because we forget that in many cases, this kind does not come out by anything but prayer. There's certain things that God is not going to do for us or through us until we bow before him in devoted, persistent fervent, earnest, believing prayer. And let me say at that point that I added all of those adjectives purposefully because I think that's the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about here. He's talking in Mark 9, 29 about devoted, persistent, fervent, earnest, believing prayer. In other words, Jesus is not saying here to the disciples, you know, if you'd have just shot up a quick prayer, if you'd have just kind of tipped your cap to God in prayer, everything would have turned out fine. That's not the point, right? 
And the fact that he's not talking about just a quick, simple, easy prayer is emphasized by the fact that some of your translations of Mark 9.29 actually read, this kind does not come out by anything but prayer and fasting. And we'll come back and talk about the differences in the translations in just a little while. But for now, let it suffice to say that Jesus was urging in this verse, not quick and easy prayer, but concerted, fervent, serious prayer. The kind of prayer that takes time and concentration and effort and the kind that is even willing to skip meals if need be so that we might pray. That was the missing ingredient in the disciples' efforts to cast out this demon. They weren't dealing with a small demon or a small problem, and so a hurried and a half-hearted prayer was not going to suffice. They needed to bathe this situation in prayer. They needed to be serious about prayer. They needed to spend time before the Lord and perhaps even fast about this difficult situation that had presented itself to them. And that's what I'm commending to you this morning. That's what we're trying to do tonight at 6 p.m. and in the afternoon as some of us fast in regard to the coming year. To bathe it in prayer. To say we can't do, we can't be the people we ought to be. We can't face the situations that are going to present themselves unless we seek God's help earnestly. And I hope that that's the paradigm that each of us will take, not just into today, but into the year that's ahead in general. There are things as a church and as individuals and families that we need to do and be in the coming year. We need to win people to Christ. We need to support and encourage our missionaries. We need to overcome our besetting sins. We need to make wise decisions. Some of us are going to need to make decisions that we don't even know we're going to need to make yet. We're going to need to grow in various areas of our spiritual lives, and the list could go on. And in many of those cases, it's not going to do simply for us to work hard at those things or to think hard about those things. In many of those cases, we will only do and be what God has called us to do and be with concerted, time-consuming, earnest, perhaps fasting prayer. That's what the disciples should have done in the face of this larger-than-themselves task. And that's what we must do this year in the face of the eternal work that God has called us to do. Our work is eternal work. We're not just gathering to be encouraged for the week ahead so that we can go out and be happier for the week. We are gathering every week and we're gathering when we do various projects and things together to do eternal work. And God has called us to do that work in our own souls and in our children's souls and in our church family and in this city and in this world. Eternal work. And if we're going to have any eternal significance behind the things that we are doing, we must be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Lest we find our neighbors or our family members, like the father in verse 18, looking at our lives and mumbling under their breaths. They couldn't do it. We asked them to do it. We watched to see if they could do it. They couldn't do it. They talked about serving God. They made a lot of sound and fury about eternal things. But when it actually came down to it, they couldn't do it. What a shame if people would say that about us. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time asking and answering the question, why? Why does God sometimes allow our work to produce very little fruit? Why does God sometimes allow us to end up like the disciples in Mark 9, 18? Well, so it's... So we'll turn to prayer, right? 
So we'll turn to him and seek his help. But then the question is, why is that so important to him? Why is fervent prayer so often the key to our spiritual success? It's not a payment plan, is it? It's not that go, as though God is in heaven sitting there with a stopwatch. And for every minute that we spend in prayer, then he doles out a certain amount of kilowatts of spiritual power. Right? It's not a tit-for-tat kind of arrangement. It's not that God is saying, if you'll spend so much time with me in prayer, then I'll come and be with you when you need my help. God's not like us in this respect. We do that kind of thing, right? If you'll sit with me for two hours and watch my kind of movie, then I'll come and I'll help you clean up the garage later, right? Some of you said that to your spouses, but that's not what God does, and that's not what he's advocating. He's not saying you've got to spend more time in prayer to earn my favor. If you spend more time in prayer, I'll be more pleased with you and I'll be more apt to help you when you really need it. No. Because of what Jesus has done living a sinless life in our place and dying a sacrificial death on our behalf and rising again on the third day, God is already as pleased with us as he could ever be. So prayer is not about earning God's favor, making him more happy with us. Jesus has already done that. So then what gives? If God is as pleased with us as he could possibly be in Christ, why does he sometimes withhold the outpouring of his blessing until we have earnestly, fervently prayed for it, perhaps even with fasting. I'm going to suggest to you three reasons that arise out of Mark chapter 9. Why is God so pleased to answer fervent prayer? Three reasons. The first is this. Fervent prayer admits helplessness. Fervent prayer admits helplessness. That is to say that you will only truly pray. You will only really be earnest before the Lord when you realize that you cannot do it on your own. Right? Fervent prayer is an admission that without God's help, all I can accomplish is to blister the insides of my fingers on the lid of the pickle jar. Right? Fervent prayer says to God, I can't do it. And that's the significance of the words this kind in Mark 29. This kind can only come out by prayer. Why does Jesus say that? Well, he doesn't say to the disciples that they can't do anything at all without first praying and fasting, right? He doesn't even tell them that they have to pray and fast before they could ever cast out a demon. What he says, though, was that there was something about this kind of demon. There was something about this particular situation that called for an even greater degree of dependence upon God's extraordinary help. There was something about this situation And that corresponds to our experience, doesn't it? You don't have to pray every time you go to open up the canister of gherkins, do you? No. But sometimes you come across a jar that's too tight for you. And so you call to your husband or your son in the next room and you say, would you come open this? And if there's nobody there, then you stop and you say, God, I can't get this jar open. And on a more serious note, the same thing can be said with all sorts of more important things, like sharing the gospel. Sometimes we share the good news of Jesus and people are willing to listen to us right off the bat, aren't they? But other times, and this seems to increasingly be the case in our culture, this kind is a tougher nut to crack. This kind of conversion, this kind of change, this kind of even gospel conversation is not going to happen in that person's life. 
unless we've spent long time pleading with God for an open door and for an open heart. And we can say the same thing about our sin habits, about our sicknesses, and so on. Some of them are more difficult to deal with than others, right? And the list can go on. And when in those situations we actually stop and plead God's help, we're admitting this situation is bigger than me. It's bigger than my natural strength and ability. It's bigger even than the everyday normal help that God gives me. And we know that in reality, every situation is bigger than us, right? We believe that Jesus means what he says when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We affirm that. But the reality is that in God's common grace that he gives to all people, causing rain to fall on the just and the unjust, in God's common grace, he gives us the strength to do a lot of things without us ever having to stop and pray fervently about them, doesn't he? Most of you probably didn't pray that you would get here safely this morning, and in God's mercy, you did. So oftentimes, God gives us the strength to do things that we don't pray or fast about. And sometimes we should pray about them nonetheless. But the reality is that other times, other times, He doesn't give us the strength to do things in His normal, everyday power. You don't always need to fast before you share the gospel, but sometimes you do. There are some situations, Mark 9.29 would have us know, where the normal, everyday strength and ability that God supplies are simply not going to be enough. There are everyday opportunities and problems and obstacles and challenges, and then there are this kind. And this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And again, the point in saying all of this is to remind you that to stop and pray in those situations, to get on your knees fervently begging the Lord's help, and to do so sometimes even with fasting is an admission to God that you are absolutely helpless before the situation that's in front of you. Those things are an admission that you understand what the disciples learned here in verse 29, that you are not equal to the tasks that God has placed before you and that you simply cannot proceed as though you were sometimes we say god will never give us anything that we can't handle and there's some truth to that but really it's not true when you just take it at face value god gave these men a situation they couldn't handle so that they would say i can't handle this i throw up the white flag now we understand when people say that what they mean is if you'll trust god then then you'll be able to handle it but in our natural strength There are so many things that fall into the category of this kind. And we need to seek God's help. Again, admitting that we sometimes get along just fine without fervent prayer. But realizing that perhaps the fact that we sometimes get along without fervent prayer is one of the reasons why we find ourselves so often in Mark 9.18. We get along so well many other times without prayer, without fasting, that we assume that we'll get along fine this time as well. We can't be certain, but I suspect that that was a part of the disciples' problem in Mark 9. Everything had been fine before. They'd seen Jesus cast out demons probably dozens of other times. And Mark 6 tells us that they themselves had cast out many demons three chapters before this. 
So they knew what they were doing. This wasn't a situation they'd never seen before. They knew what to say. They knew what not to say. Their words were prepared. And so perhaps they walked up to this particular boy thinking that they had the situation licked. They would say what they said before and everything would be fine. But soon they discovered that this kind was more difficult than they thought. This kind was more difficult than previous encounters. This kind was more difficult than what they could actually handle. And don't we do the same thing sometimes with our challenges? We've shared the gospel before. We've worked out the finances before. We've worked through family difficulties before. We've disciplined the kids before. We've overcome sins before. We've shaken off sickness before. And so sometimes we assume that we've done it before, and if we'll just follow the same procedures that we did the last time, they will work again and all will be well, and the demon will go away or the coworker will listen to us or the kid will straighten up or whatever it may be. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? It especially doesn't work that way with the kid straightening up, right? And if we get into the habit of assuming that everything will always work because we've done this before, then we have forgotten how helpless we really are before the Lord. And I suspect that sometimes God sends this kind into our lives just to remind us that life is not lived simply on the strength of experience or formulas or even on the strength of God's common grace alone. The Christian life is one of utter dependence upon God's might and his power and utter helplessness before him. And I just want to remind you of a few situations in our own church that make me feel helpless and that call for our earnest prayers in the hours ahead and in the days ahead. We've not baptized a new convert in quite some time. And several that we have baptized in the years past, have fallen away from the faith. Why is that? I don't know all the reasons for that. I know it's not for a lack of many of you sharing the gospel with people. I know it's not for a lack of people hearing the gospel from this pulpit. And again, I don't know all the reasons why we haven't seen people really come to Christ in some time. But maybe, maybe it's simply because in the highly secular and religiously smug city in which we live, new converts are simply not going to come out of the woodworks unless we, all of us together, are fervently, concertedly, earnestly pleading God to give us souls. In the city, in the culture in which we live, perhaps it's true that this kind are not going to come out of the world and into the church by anything but serious prayer. Then there's also the matter of our budget. You all know that we've had people move away in recent years and we've cut our budget back and we've tried to stay there and we've cut it, I think, as much as we can cut it. And we still, this coming year, need to bring in $8,000 more than we did this past year. And yet we don't have any guarantees that we'll have any new sources of money or that any of us are going to become significantly more wealthy in the coming year. And so what does that leave us with? It leaves us with prayer right and maybe it means that this kind of budget is not going to come together for us by anything but prayer another thing we're about to send scott and jessica rutan into the tropical climate of bangladesh to see and be exposed to diseases that they've never seen 
and poverty that they have never imagined and religious darkness that they will at times almost be able to feel in their very bones. And their health, both physical and spiritual, may well hinge by God's design on your serious, fervent prayer on their behalf. Let alone their evangelistic efforts. How are they going to succeed in sharing the gospel in this culture that's dominated by Muslims from the top in the government down? How are they going to succeed in sharing the gospel there without fervent prayer and fasting on behalf of those who are behind them? This trip cannot be undertaken by anything but prayer. And then there's the matter of our own individual souls, right? Many of us are reminded by the coming of another new year that we're not where we should be, where we'd like to be, where we wished we were spiritually. And we've not grown as we would like to have done. We're not maybe some of us as committed to God's word or his church as we know we should be. We still haven't rid ourselves perhaps of that besetting sin. We still haven't forgiven that person. And many of us know, myself included, I was reminded yesterday, that the reality is that we were saying these same things about ourselves 364 days ago. And in January of 2009 and 2008 and 2007 and so on. But could it be that we're not growing as we should, or at least not growing in some particular area as we should, because this kind of growth and maturity are not going to be accomplished by anything but prayer? Could it be for some of us that we are stagnant spiritually because God is waiting for us to get serious about praying and perhaps even fasting for our own souls? Those are just a few examples of why we as a church family need to pray and to do so fervently. Every moment spent in true prayer is an admission that we are not up to the challenges that God has called us to meet. And when we come to that place of helplessness before God, we are prime candidates to see his miracles. So let me ask you, personally, are there any difficulties of this kind in your life? What are they for you? And this new year, will you admit your helplessness by just putting the pickle jar down for a few minutes, as it were, and getting on your knees before the Lord? Do you really feel helpless Help us enough to fast perhaps today and to come and pray tonight. Do you really believe that time spent on your knees will actually be more productive than all the straining and sweating and twisting and turning that you're going to be doing in the year ahead, working on whatever it is that you're working on? Now that question about the value of our time spent in prayer brings me to the second heading. Why? Is God so pleased to answer fervent prayer? Secondly, because fervent prayer evidences faith. It admits helplessness, but fervent prayer also gives evidence that we really have faith, that we really believe. Now you'll notice that the disciples' root problem in verse 19 was unbelief. Do you see that? Jesus called them an unbelieving generation. And perhaps... Because of the emphasis of the so-called faith healers in our own culture, we may imagine that what Jesus meant when he called them an unbelieving generation was that while they said that they believed God could cast out this demon, they didn't really believe that God could or would do it. Isn't that how we often think of unbelief in these kinds of situations? So-and-so tried to cast out the demon or heal the disease, but 
it didn't happen. So he must not have really believed that God could do it. And that can be the case, certainly. But let me remind you that these very same disciples, three chapters prior to this, had cast out, quote, many demons, Mark 6.13. So I highly doubt the crux of their unbelief was what many today would have us say. That is to say, I highly doubt that the problem Jesus was referring to in verse 19 had to do with the fact that they didn't believe that God could do miracles. Of course they believed that. If anyone could do miracles, or excuse me, if anyone believed that God could do miracles, it was these men, right? They'd seen it and done it many times before. So their unbelief wasn't so much that they didn't believe God could do it, but that, remember, they thought they could do it without God's help. That was the issue. Not that God couldn't do it, but that they thought they could do it without his, without his help. That's why, on one hand, Jesus can say that their problem was unbelief in verse 19, and then, on the other hand, he can blame the failure on their lack of prayer. Why? Because their prayerlessness was evident. The fact that they didn't pray evidence that they had more faith in themselves and their methods and their experience and their abilities than they did in God. But now the point in this second heading is that the reverse also would have been true. Had they stopped and prayed, had they perhaps said to this man, you know what, we really want to help you, but we need God's help. Can you meet us at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and we're going to spend the evening fasting and praying for your boy? Can you meet us then? If they would have done that, that would have been evidence that they had more faith in God and in His power than they did in their own experience and their own methods, wouldn't it? Let me put it back into the terms that I used at the end of that previous point. True faith is sometimes measured by whether or not we think a half an hour spent in prayer is just as valuable, maybe more so, than a half an hour spent in working on God's behalf. True faith in God, as opposed to faith in oneself, is evidenced by willing to stop whatever you're doing and spend concerted time praying and getting absolutely nothing done in a physical sense because you believe that God can accomplish more than you can. Because you believe that if God will help you, you will get more accomplished in that half hour of prayer than you would in any whole full hour of the rest of the day. That's sometimes the evidence that we really trust God. And truth be told, many American Christians struggle to believe this, even though our heads and our Bibles tell us it's so. We struggle to believe that time spent in prayer could be more valuable than any other time spent. And that's evidenced by the fact that most American Christians are far better at attending the worship hour or the service project than they are attending the prayer meeting. Because in the worship service, we're getting something done. We can take down notes. We're learning things that we can file away. We can feel like we're making progress spiritually. And if we participate in the work project somehow, then we can see at the end of the day what we've accomplished. But it doesn't work that way at the prayer meeting, does it? To come and just sit and pray for 45 minutes or an hour means that you have to walk by faith and not by sight. You have to believe that things are happening while your eyes are closed and your feet are still and your hands are not working on anything or even taking notes. And the same can be said of our own individual prayer lives. We'll only spend significant time and energy in prayer if we believe that prayer really works, that God is accomplishing more through our prayers than we could have accomplished by using that same time to, quote, do something productive. 
If we don't believe that things happen when we pray, then we'll simply spend our time doing other things. And many of us do. And I'm personally tested in this area almost every day of my life. Almost every day of my life, I wake up with God's work in front of me. By the very nature of my calling and my job, I wake up every day with God's work in front of me. And I want, rightly, to be diligent in that work and to dive into it head first. But I also know, at least in my head, that my diligence will amount to nothing without God's help. And therefore, I wake up most every day with a very strong realization that I need to spend time alone with God, hearing his voice and pleading with his help for the studying or the preaching or the writing or the visiting that I'm going to be doing in the day ahead. But often, when I start to think about the studying and the preaching and the writing and the visiting that I'm going to be doing, I say to myself, well, I'll pray later on this morning or maybe right after lunch, but right now I've got a ton of things I've got to cross off my list. And so I dive into my work many days subconsciously believing that my toil and labor for God are more important than God's help upon my toil and labor. Sometimes it's that subconsciously I'm thinking to myself that I'll lose time if I stop to pray. But the reality is actually the verse, the reverse. If I don't pause to pray and admit my helplessness and admit that I need God's blessing and plead for it, I'm actually losing time while I work because my work ends up being a spinning of the wheels. The tasks are too big for me. I can't preach the gospel or write sermons or counsel hurting people on my own. And when I dive in and try to do so, I get very little accomplished of value and end up wasting my time. And I remind you that the same is true for you, especially in regard to the spiritual work that God has given you to do. You cannot win your relatives to Christ on your own. Their hearts are too hard for you to crack. You cannot raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord on your own because their sin natures are too strong for you to overcome. You cannot overcome your besetting sins on your own because your sin nature is too hard for you to overcome. And we cannot teach Sunday school or counsel a hurting brother or sister in Christ or even adequately come and sing God's praises on Sunday morning on our own. And so, if we are to accomplish anything of eternal value, we simply must stop springing into action, assuming that God would help us, and rather have enough faith in God and lack enough faith in ourselves that we're willing to spend time praying over the lesson we're about to teach or the sermon we're about to hear or the child we are trying to raise or the conversation that we hope we'll have while we're home for the holidays or simply the uncertainties of the day that's ahead of us. We must stop springing into action on our own and start pausing to seek God's blessing upon our action. I hope I'm making myself in this passage clear. What I want to say and what I think the Holy Spirit wants to say in back of me is simply this. Time spent in fervent prayer is evidence that we have more faith in God's ability to work than we do in our own. Time spent in prayer is evidence that we believe God will get more done in that 15 or 30 or 60 minutes than we could ever think about doing with all of our own sweat and toil. And God loves to answer people who trust him 
like that. And I hope that you will. Now, thirdly, let me say that God is pleased to answer fervent prayer because fervent prayer connotes hunger. It connotes hunger. No one really prays with zeal or with fervor. No one really gives concerted time to prayer unless they're serious about getting answers. Right? That only makes sense. You only plead with God, you only plead with anyone else for that matter, because you need help and you're serious about getting it. You're hungry for something that you do not yet possess. And I use the word hunger because of the fasting that's often connected with this verse. There's not time for me to discuss all the reasons why some versions translate the verse one way and some render it another way, although there is a lengthy footnote in the manuscript that will be out on the front table But suffice it to say that whether or not Jesus in this passage actually said and fasting, whether or not he promoted fasting here in Mark 9.29, that spiritual discipline was widely practiced among the early Christians in the New Testament as an aid to prayer. We see it in the book of Acts. When the missionaries were sent, they fasted and prayed, Acts 13. When they appointed elders in the churches, they fasted and prayed. And we saw it on Christmas Eve in the life of Anna, the prophetess, who was waiting for the Lord's coming in Luke chapter 2. And how was she waiting? In fasting and prayer. And of course, there was a very good and logical reason why the early Christians attached fasting to their prayers. And the reason was this, because to give up food in favor of prayer was as much to say to God, I want an answer to this prayer more than I want my dinner. I want you to intervene in this situation more than I want my daily bread, Lord. I'm hungrier in my soul than I am in my body. And that's why they did it. That's what fasting says. I'm hungrier for answers to prayer than I am even for food. And therefore, ever since the New Testament, Christians have made a practice in times of real hunger and real neediness of adding fasting alongside their prayers as a way of showing God that they are serious, that they are hungry about what they're asking. That's the point of fasting. It's not that skipping a meal or two or three earns points with God. No. Remember, Jesus already earned all the points that we'll ever need when he died and lived on our behalf and rose again on our behalf as well. So fasting doesn't earn God's attention. It's simply a way to show him that you're serious, that you're hungry for him to answer a given prayer need even more so than for your next meal. And really we can say the same thing about any concerted effort in prayer, whether it's accompanied by fasting or not. If you come tonight and give 60 to 90 minutes to prayer, it will be evidence that you are at least somewhat serious about the things we're going to be praying about. Somewhat serious, at least, about wrestling, wrestling with God for his blessings upon our church in 2011. Indeed, it will be evidence that you are more serious about the kingdom of God than you are about being home to see who made the playoffs or to see Extreme Makeover or CSI Miami. And if you choose to add fasting to your prayers, then you're probably all the more serious. That's the point of this passage. And the same thing can be said about your own fasting and prayer privately. To spend concerted time in these ways is evidence that the things of God are important to you. To be fervent and earnest in your prayers is to demonstrate that you're serious, that you want to see God do something, that you're spiritually hungry. I just ask you, are you?
Are you really hungry? Is there anything in your life, or more importantly, is there anything in the kingdom of God that you want more than you want today's lunch? Really? And if that's true, are you willing to give up today's lunch in order to demonstrate to God that you're serious about obtaining that blessing? Is there anyone's soul that's worth that much to you? Is there any area of personal holiness in your own life that's worth that much to you? Are our missionaries and the cause of the gospel in Bangladesh and Ethiopia and Brazil and New Mexico and Central Asia that valuable to you? And are these various things valuable enough to you that three weeks from now, when the fast has passed us by and when the initial incentive of the new year has worn off, you'll still be giving considerable time and effort to praying for these things? And sometimes fasting for them as well. Praise God, many of you I think will be. But each of us needs from time to time to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. How hungry am I? Really? Let me put it like this. We said under our first heading that many Christians struggle to pray because they are pretty sure that everything will be alright. With or without God's special intervention. Because it's always been alright before. I've been there, done that. Everything will be fine. Then we said under our second heading that many other Christians struggle to pray because deep down to them it doesn't seem like prayer is actually accomplishing very much. They find working for God a better use of their time than begging God to work for them. And now under this third heading, what I'm saying is that some of the rest of us struggle to pray not because we're so busy working for God, but simply because we've grown sluggish and complacent spiritually. The fact that our missionaries desperately need us doesn't light our fires anymore. The fact that our neighborhood is almost holy without Christ no longer moves us. The fact that our brothers and sisters in the Lord, many of them have become stagnant in the faith, doesn't make us weep. The state of our children's souls doesn't keep us awake at night like it once did. The state of our own souls doesn't keep us awake at night like it once did. And it just seems for many of us a lot easier to just pop another hot pocket into the microwave and another disc into the DVD player and while away the hours, assuming that eventually we will get back to praying for those things. That's where some of us perhaps may be. And so I ask you, are you hungry spiritually? Hungry to see souls saved in this community. Hungry to see our church grow in depth and in breadth. Hungry to see your children walk with God. Hungry to see our missionaries succeed and not lose heart. Hungry to see your own soul expanding instead of shriveling. Hungry to see those sin habits finally fall off of you like icicles on a 60 degree day in the middle of winter. Devoted, persistent, fervent, earnest, believing, fasting prayer is the way to show God that you're really hungry. And when we get serious with God in prayer, it's amazing to see what wonders He will do in response to an earnest heart. Now let me offer one final motivation to prayer from outside of this passage, and then we're finished. And that is simply to remind you that Jesus died so that you can pray. Jesus was mocked and spat upon and cursed and beaten with rods and scourged with a whip and crowned with thorns and nailed half naked to a tree 
so that you might have the privilege of being earnest with your God in prayer. Jesus bought the entire contents of this sermon with his precious blood. He paid for Mark 9.29 with his life. And can you and I leave that gift sitting under the tree unwrapped? At Christmas time, I always find it amusing that as our children open their presents, some of which cost a great deal to the buyers, they often latch onto the silliest little trifles. You've seen this, I'm sure. The children are often far more excited when they open the shoddy little plastic airplane from the Dollar Tree than they are about the far more long-lasting and expensive collection of classic books that they tore into 15 minutes before. It's amazing. But as they get older, I hope and believe that they will learn that those books are far more valuable than a thousand plastic airplanes. But when, oh when, will you and I learn the same lesson spiritually? How long will we leave God's greater gifts purchased with the blood of his own son under the Christmas tree, as it were, while we trifle around with so many plastic pleasures that are here today and gone tomorrow? When will some of us grow up in the faith and see the value of fervent, believing prayer? When will we learn that so many blessings in this fallen world are not going to come by anything but prayer? Perhaps today will be the beginning of a coming of age for some of us. Perhaps 2011 will be a year for some of us to grow out of spiritual adolescence and into spiritual adulthood in this matter of prayer. Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might come to God and have answers to our prayers. And I plead with you not to leave that glorious gift purchased with Christ's blood lying neglected under that tree. And if you have, if you have neglected the gift of prayer, let me remind you that Christ died for that too. He died so that your prayerless neglect might be forgiven and that you might be restored and made whole and brought near to God's throne of grace again today. So come to Christ in prayer today. No matter how much you've failed at it in the past, come. Come to him, every single one of you, and devote yourselves to prayer and know that whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out.